This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Tonight we'll go to Ecuador and Colombia, as well as to the Wadanangu ceremony in central Queensland. We are looking into the dirty truth about clean energy. According to Carlos Zorilla, our focus on moving beyond fossil fuels has blinded us to the dangers of green optimism. The plan to have everyone driving an electric vehicle and all our energy stored in batteries has created a new gold rush for copper, cobalt, nickel and lithium, critical minerals. Dr Gavin Mudd told a Climate Action Brown Bag Lunch that we must not repeat the mistakes of the past. He warned about the radioactive waste released when some of the critical minerals are mined. Some are in above ground tailings ponds, for example at Olympic Dam in South Australia, and some are buried in old mines, for example in Western Australia. But there is a huge demand. We'll follow up this story in future shows, but to start we will go to Ecuador. A cloud forest area is now threatened by a copper mine project connected to Gina Reinhardt. So we are implicated. Until now, it has been hard to believe that we could get rid of coal, oil and gas in time to prevent catastrophic climate disruption. We might still fail. But meanwhile, the mining industry is finding new profits in critical minerals like cobalt, copper, nickel and lithium. Carlos Doria is calling for careful regulation of the transition to clean energy, but his voice and others is being drowned by our green optimism, which says that we can go on as before, just with everyone traveling in an electric vehicle and storing their solar power in a battery. Let's not have green optimism based on callous ignorance of the damage. So I've asked Carlos to speak to us today to inform us and put us in the picture of the behind the scenes effect of all of this new green metal Eldorado searching. So welcome, Carlos. Look, let's start. You're living in Ecuador. Tell us what it's like there. Just describe that place, the cloud forest in the Andes where you live. I, I do live in a cloud forest. Uh, the forest is about three minute walk from my house. I've been living here for 44 years. And uh, since 1995, I've been involved in a resistant movement to stop uh, large scale copper development in primary cloud forests. For those people that are not aware of cloud forests, they're about one of the most threatened ecosystems in the world. There's very few cloud forests left about 
maybe 2% of the world's tropical forest or cloud forest. Montane forests or mountain tropical forests are especially diverse. Biologically diverse, they are the most diverse per land area. Most people think of the Amazon. Um, montane forests are much more diverse per land area, especially in plants. So we're looking at, at a biological gem that's in jeopardy. And it has been in jeopardy since uh, the 90s when the Japanese found uh, some copper. We managed to stop two transnational mining companies, the Japanese and then later the Canadian Ascended Copper. Uh, however, the Japanese found some copper, not enough to call it a mine, but they had to withdraw because the communities kicked them out. Once we figured out the real impacts of large-scale mining in areas like, the, like this, which is very steep, it's very rainy here, uh, in the mining area, in the proposed mining area, they get between four or five meters of rain per year. Very steep primary forest, incredibly biologically diverse. Uh, we're talking of over 100 species of uh, animals and plants that are threatened by extinction just within the mining area. So it is a, the jewel of the biological jewels of Ecuador and most of the tropics. Yeah, well, because so we stopped the Japanese and they left in the uh, 90s. The Canadians came, they couldn't even access their mining concession. They were kicked out uh, in late 2000. Later on in 2014, 2013, Codelco from Chile came. Everybody's after this copper. And now more so because of what you mentioned, this uh, demand for these quote unquote green metals that are anything but green when they come out of areas like these. And I'm glad that you're uh, calling attention to this issue. I wish more people would mention it and bring it out to, to the public's view because people have no idea what this rush to the green transition means for communities, not only animals and plants, no? This uh, proposed mining area would relocate four communities. Hundreds of people would lose their farms, their homes. So we're talking human rights violation, gross human rights violation, mm -hmm. violations of the rights of nature. Ecuador does have, in the constitution, gives nature rights, just like people and corporations. So it is a wide scale violation just to mine copper. And where will this copper end up? How many green vehicles, how many people will be able to afford this electric vehicle? Five, 10% of the world population, maybe. So nobody's drawing attention to this uh, terrible impacts that are associated with this transition. I also believe we need to stop pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. There's no question about it. Uh, it's almost too late, but we need to do all we can. But it's insane to think that electric vehicle is the answer. It is anything but the answer. You're listening to the Climate Action Show and Carlos Zorilla in Ecuador is warning us that the green optimism 
driving a new gold rush for critical minerals must be balanced by restrictions. There's no point in saving the planet from climate chaos and leaving a string of environmental destruction that can never be repaired. You first have to close down all coal plants with these uh, transition minerals and then electrify all public transportation. If there is any metals left over, which there will not be because there's not enough of these critical metals to go around, to give everybody an electric car and to close down the coal plants and so on. There's just not enough lithium, cobalt, especially nickel or copper. There just isn't. So before electric vehicles can access these metals, and, and I mean private vehicles, you definitely have to close down these coal plants, which is the main source of CO2 pollution and electrify all public transportation, make it expensive for private vehicles. There are many things you can do, but before you even do that, as you mentioned, and as I've written about, we need to come up with really, really stringent standards to force mining companies to be really responsible and not just PR responsible and, and come up with these uh, enforceable guidelines and regulations. You cannot, even though these coal plants need to be shut down, you, you cannot extract minerals from areas like where I live. I just sort of feel that this is so much out of sight for people. They, they really feel that by some magic, the mining industry will have all new you know, self-regulation and uh, it, it, but nothing is ready for this. Nothing is being put in place for these new um, green mining ventures to be any better or less destructive. And meanwhile, the, the area you are and the Amazon, the whole, you know, these rich biodiverse areas also provide climate protection, don't they? I always think of, it sounds very callous to call it a carbon sink. You know, there that's all it is. It's a carbon sink. We know it's so much more. But tell us a bit more about how these regions provide a service. If we had to pay for it, we wouldn't want to be digging it up for copper. Yeah. No, you're right. Uh, to open a large-scale open pit mine in this area, uh, a company would have to deforest between four and 10,000 hectares. Primary cloud forests that are absorbing CO2 every day of the year. They're also protecting watersheds. Water is a big deal. And these forests, these mountain forests are critical in protecting watersheds and uh, keeping down erosion. So you don't have these devastating floods, for example. They're also obviously helping to regulate our climate. All these services, plus many more, that would be all be destroyed to take out copper, to supposedly help uh, the climate crisis, which is uh, ridiculous to say the, the least. We were able to hire a uh, Earth Economics in the US. They do these uh, evaluation of ecosystem services. And they came to Intag and they did a, a study, an in-depth study of what all these ecosystem services provide. At $458 million per year in ecosystem services, but it's in, in perpetuity. Yeah. Mining will last 20, 30 years, 40 maybe, 
if you're lucky. And that's it. After those 40 years are gone, you are left with this huge hole and the source of permanent contamination. Yeah. And you destroyed thousands of hectares that were capturing CO2 and also were the home of hundreds of species in danger of extinction. Yeah. So it's unimaginable what you're sacrificing to provide copper for just a few years. Yeah. Well, look, the urgent demand now, governments are saying this, and certainly all the climate movement is demanding 100% renewable energy. And some countries like Australia are even talking about 500% renewable energy, and we can export it. There's a big pipeline already under the sea between Darwin and Singapore to export renewable energy. You know, so we, we're going to profit a lot from this. But what is the downside to this green optimism? When people start talking about, look, don't worry about coal, oil and gas, let's just go for the green energy. What's the downside? The downside is that we'll stop looking for saner alternatives, the way I, I look at it. And uh, that we will stop worrying about shutting down coal plants or sources of methane, thinking that uh, these green metals will solve all the problems. They will not solve it. We don't have enough time to make this transition. And if it goes, if, uh, if these uh, key minerals go to private vehicles, it will be catastrophic because they will not make that much of a difference. And you still have coal plants and, and uh, thermal plants pumping out CO2 into the ocean. And you will destroy these carbon sinks like our forest here. So there you have it. I mean, all, all these together, if, if you don't focus on addressing the in-your-face problem, which is way too much coal consumption and petroleum consumption, and in all overconsumption, because that's one of the main deals, isn't it? We think we can get out of this crisis, which was produced by overconsumption of the richest countries in the world, by consuming more. Yeah. So it's uh, oxymoronic. Yeah, I think that's the nub of it, the consumption, that we're, we're being given this dream that we could just go on as usual, just with renewable energy instead of fossil fuel energy. And that's a simple message. It's very attractive. A lot of young people would think that's great because I won't have to do anything much. It's all happening. What experiences have you had talking, trying to persuade people about this? Yeah, that's interesting. I I get groups of uh, university students here at, at my reserve, at the Forest Reserve. And we do talk about this. And sometimes they're shocked when, when I say uh, electric vehicles is absolutely not the answer. Uh, some of them will say, what are we to do? <laughs> As if private vehicles is the only way to get around. And I say, have you heard of bicycles or using Uber or sharing rides, sharing a vehicle, buying cars with other people and sharing that? There are many ways. Walking is uh, actually still works pretty well, but we have been brainwashed into thinking that we need certain things and cars is a big one. So unless we get over that and realize that that's mentality, that state of mind is what got us here in the first place, to consume without being conscious, without being aware of what 
happening with where these minerals are coming from and water consumption habit, how it's contributing to climate change. I think we need a lot of uh, reflection by the youth and we need for them to find alternatives to private uh, transportation. Um, we don't often have someone from Ecuador, and I know you have oil there. I know you have got that in your constitution to protect nature. Um, I know there's a new government in Colombia with sounding good on climate. Tell us about the climate action in your region. Uh, are people feeling betrayed by this constant battle, you know, not only to stop fossil fuels, but now to stop or to regulate green metals, how are people feeling? Ecuador is not a mining country or wasn't a mining country until, until recently. So it has not been so much in the forefront, except for the last four or five years when all these mining companies got their mining concessions without consultation with the communities, which is a violation. Australian, there are many Australian mining companies in Ecuador. They own hundreds of thousands of hectares of mining concessions. Not one single community has been consulted, which is a violation of constitution. So that's coming up now with more and more conflicts around mining activity, which was not the case 10 years ago. The real issue has been petroleum. Most of the petroleum in Ecuador is in indigenous lands. So there's been a lot of pushback from indigenous communities. Of course, you have some of the world's largest corporations or petroleum companies. Ecuador the petroleum company has sued Ecuador in several occasions and won hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation because Ecuador has taken back their mining leases because they were completely unfair, for example. So petroleum has been more, much more of an issue than mining. The green metals is something really not discussed too much yet in Ecuador. And I'm sure it will be, but it just hasn't come up that much in the news. The, the press is not that much aware of it. And as climate, is climate the one of the main arguments or is it just destruction of local habitats, sacred lands? And More lands? environmental justice, where climate is not that huge of an issue here. We have not seen these uh, dramatic climate changes as the rest of the world. A lot of people are, are working on, on climate justice also in Ecuador but it's not as big of an issue as it is in Australia, the US, Europe, but it will be because uh, we are starting to see more and more changes. For example, where I live last year, we, we, we didn't get a, a dry season and people are losing crops. I plant coffee, for example, I lost all 100% of my coffee crop this year because it just rained too much. So it is becoming more visible, even mm -hmm. though the press is not really that interested in climate justice or climate change. They're more interested in development, quote unquote, and, and how to reach it without destroying the environment. And the way the government paints it, it's, it's inevitable. You have to destroy it so we can save the environment, if you can believe that. Yeah, 
I can. I can believe that they talk like that. Tell us about the Australian companies. I think a lot of us would be fairly unaware of what they're doing and who they are. Yeah, well, you should look up this company called Handreen, which is owned by, of course, your very own Hancock, the richest woman in Australia, or the richest person, I believe. They have gone into this beautiful forested area just north of here in Imbabura province to try to develop. They went in with police. It's the only way they, they could access the mining concessions. And they, uh, a lot of human rights violations. They sued 60 people from the community because they opposed the entrance of the mining company, but they were able to abusing the law to go into the mining concession. They're looking for copper and gold. And that's just one of them. I mean, there's also Sun Gold, uh, Soul Gold, which is partly owned by uh, Sunstone and uh, other mining companies in the same region. Mm. There are probably Canadian mining companies own more concessions than any other country. So it is uh, it is drastic, and they take advantage of the soft laws and the uh, the corruption card. There's a lot of corruption in Ecuador. And they get their way, They're especially uh, Handreen or mm. the subsidiary of Hancock. Very, very aggressive. So we're going to be seeing a lot more conflicts around mining uh, concessions owned by Canadian, uh, Australian mining companies. As we speak, Globally, there's really visible climate emergency, isn't there? I think it's the, even the media can't ignore it. The Pakistan floods just wiping out huge areas. Two thirds of the country is underwater and fires in Europe. And as you said, no dry season in where you are. So the, these fluctuations and unpredictable weather is, is frightening people. But taking responsibility for no new coal, oil, and gas, that's a good banner. You can hold that. No new coal, oil, and yep. gas. We say that all the time in all the climate rallies. But I wonder if this new story of limiting copper, no new copper, no new lithium, how can that win? Because the urge no. to extract it is so strong. And there's such a lot of greenwash. I think you wrote in your article, there are all those companies are now trying to greenwash themselves. Yep. This, this is the good guy. It's going to be tough because of the greenwashing effect. But that's why there needs to be international enforceable standards. And they have to protect people, water, and biodiversity. There should be no mining anywhere where there is a native forest, not even primary. I say native forest. There should be no mining where there's a good chance of contaminating water with heavy metals. And definitely should be no mining where local people will have to be relocated unless they agree to. And there has to be a real free prior informed consent process, all very open, very transparent. And that's the way to limit the damage that will accrue. So if you don't have these standards in place, you're going to devastate the environment and add to climate change. To the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. See, that's that's the thing. If you don't have these standards, if you don't protect these biodiverse areas, 
if you don't respect the rights of local populations, indigenous campesino people, if you don't take action to prevent contamination of water with heavy metals, you're going to destroy the environment and you're going to increase the damage. You're going to increase the climate crisis, augment it. There's no way to avoid it. There's just no way to avoid it. That's, these forests are, are carbon sinks. They're protecting watershed. They're protecting people's livelihood. They're protecting communities that will be flooded if these areas are not protecting watersheds. So there's only one certifier right now that is halfway decent. And most companies are looking for other alternatives that are easier, easier to comply with because it, it's a IRMA, IRMA. This certifier has third-party certification. In other words, you, you cannot have the mining company certify itself. That's ridiculous. Mm. Or the government that depends from revenues from these mining corporations. You need a third-party, independent third-party certification to say this, this mining company is complying with human rights, environmental rights, cultural rights and protecting the environment correctly. If you don't have this third party certification, forget it. It's going to be all greenwash. Yeah. So at the last COP26, I looked at a lot of the sessions there and there were many people from Amazonas and also from Peru. I saw a few, but they're Campesino people just telling their story. And is there any big, clear demand or organization that's pushing for those international standards? Not that I know of, and that is a good point. Uh, I work with German Watch. In Germany, German Watch is pushing for that. I help them draw up a, a policy paper for German industry. It is happening country by country. I think the United Nations maybe, uh, should step in. I don't know how much power they yield or how much they're co-opted by these large corporations. But I think you need a player like that, uh, the UN, uh, to step in. Well, thank you, Carlos. Look, you've had a lifetime of campaigning. And I'd like to know, just to finish, what your message would be for young listeners who are fearing the future really now? Gosh, I would say start where you are. Start with changing where you are, your, your university, your community, your city. Try and pass rights of nature laws. Try and fight for more bike lanes and to uh, decrease the, the price of public transportation. Try and make those small changes happen at the local level. That, that's how we started here. We started at the local level. We drew up um, local legal ordinance for the whole county to make it more environmental county, to raise the awareness of people. So I say, start where you are. It can be overwhelming to think of uh, changing the world in, in time. Start where you are because that will have a ripple effect. Your university, your, your community, your city, maybe later your state, your, your province. That's how you start. And by joining other positive movements, that's also you. There's a lot of negative examples. You can be overwhelmed, but there's also a lot of really good things happening. Yeah. You got to plug into that, connect to those positive examples. Australia has some very good 
examples of people fighting for the environment, uh, Rainforest uh, Information Center, for example, and all the, the local groups. So get, the thing is to get involved for the, a positive change. Mm -hmm. And you'll find where you can best uh, work at. Well, a lifetime doing it as you have done, as well as being a farmer and a teacher, obviously, um, that's pretty admirable. And so thank I'd like you. to thank you for talking to us. We've been talking to Carlos Zorria, a founder of a group called Decoin. It's an organization at the front line of the resistance that we didn't even mention the name, the, the Lurimagua Copper Project, but this is- Lurimagua Copper, yeah, it's- uh... Is being operated by Coleco, which is the world's largest copper producer. Uh, yeah, well, this is obviously your bet noir, but and but apparently your group won the prestigious Equator Prize. Correct. Yeah. The work is ongoing. So thank you for talking to us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the space. Start again. <clears throat> Start again. You're listening to the Climate Action Show on Radio 3CR. Our guest from the Ecuadorian cloud forest was Carlos Zorija. After the break, we'll talk to Federico Fuentes about the new government in Colombia, which has a big climate justice program. Hi, my name is Larissa Baldwin and I'm the new CEO of GetUp. I first took action with GetUp, as many people do, as a volunteer on an election campaign, handing out how to vote in Queensland. The marriage equality calls, I remember doing lots and lots of those calls for GetUp. And I started as a campaigner once I left SEED in, I think, 2018, moving in a way that leads with communities first, with First Nations people particularly. We were able to build this really successful model. Good campaigning is not about saying what's popular, it's about making popular what needs to be said. And, and really that happens here at GetUp. Over the next five years, the next decade, we need to see incredible um, sufficient climate action right across the country. When you talk about climate justice and really about the communities that are going to be impacted, we've seen the largest natural disaster in history in terms of the floods, that is only going to get bigger and impact more people. So how do we deal as a country um, with this level of disasters when we don't have the political will to make the change that we need to see? Things like the treaty and truth-telling, um, when we look about representation for First Nations people, those opportunities don't come around in every generation. They don't even come around every other generation. So Get Up as an organisation and solidarity um, has always been a big part in how we move substantive First Nations justice forward in this country. Going out into the community and asking what are the solutions here and really pushing forward for those things and putting the power behind them. Just changing government isn't going to change everything that we need. It's not going to deal with the worsening climate crisis that is on our doorstep, literally. We need whole system change here. There is more need now than ever to have an organisation like GetUp. I think everyone should be getting on board with us, getting involved in our campaigns. Uh, the more people that get involved, the better campaigns we run. And let's see where we can take this.
That was Eskimo Joe singing Say Something. The only thing to fear is silence. We're calling you to speak up for the cloud forest in Ecuador, for the Dunmabula Springs threatened by the Adani mine up in Queensland, and to speak to Tanya Plibersek to stop the destruction of our safe climate as we keep exporting coal and gas. 3CR. Thrilling news from Colombia made me seek out journalist Federico Fuentes to tell us about the ambitious new climate and environment agenda in Colombia. If you think of Colombia in the northwest corner of, of South America with the Andes Mountains down the centre and the Amazon River at its feet, so that's where we are today, listeners. So welcome, Fred. What has led to this new anti-elite, anti-extractive government of Gustavo Petro and his vice president, Francia Marquez? I think it's impossible to understand the election of Petro and Marquez uh, without considering two very important factors. The first of those factors is the probably now since about 2018, very powerful protest movements that have taken to the streets across Colombia. Um, they have included environmental organ organizations, as you've mentioned in your introduction, but they expand beyond that to include women's organizations, farmers' organizations, trade unions. So on the one hand, you've had this very big rejection of recent neoliberal policies implemented by, by neoliberal governments uh, in Colombia that has exploded onto a level of protest not seen in Colombia for a very long time. And there are historical reasons for that, a big factor being the uh, civil war um, that had occurred um, for, for decades um, between guerrilla forces and the government. That leads to the second point. So the other, the other factor that has really um, helps explain this election is the generalised sense of the need to move beyond the decades of violence and war. Uh, previous governments had initiated negotiations and in fact had successfully done peace processes uh, with some of the guerrilla forces. They had been rejected uh, narrowly in referendums, uh, but the overwhelming sentiment for peace rode through in these elections as well. So I think it's that combination of the generalised sentiment for peace, um, the need for change, combined with those street protests, as, as I said, covering environmental issues, but other issues as well. Okay, what is their climate agenda? Well, the government has been very clear on its climate agenda. Uh, it wants to move away the country from its dependency on, in particular, fossil fuels, but also mining. Uh, it's decided um, and clearly stated that history has shown you can't develop a country if you're basing your economy on the extraction and exportation of these primary resources. So that's the essence of its agenda. Of course, that's a lot easier said than done. And that's now going to be the, the very big challenge that the government has to deal with, how exactly to make what is a very good idea into concrete policies uh, whilst maintaining popular support for his government. Yeah, well, as I see it, the what's in the way is the foreign oil and gas companies and other corporations. But um, President Petro is asking them instead to fund the transition away from fossil fuels. He said, um, this is a quote, we have the largest sponge in Amazonas. We need the funds to be its custodian. I wonder, do you think his battle cry, you know, will catch on in Venezuela and other resource-rich countries? It's a huge thing to ask them to do. 
I think more than uh, his battle cry, the concrete ex experiences of what Colombia goes through could have a very big impact. And I think the government has already taken two very positive steps, in my opinion, two crucial steps to even begin to contemplate this very difficult transition. The first is to begin to reform the tax system. So as you've mentioned, there is wealth already in the country. The problem is that most of that wealth was not going to the government um, because the rich were able to keep that money or take it abroad. Um, by moving to implement tax reform, the government is seeking to keep as much of that money as possible within the country to be able to fund this transition. So that's, that's an absolutely vital step. And it's a step that ordinary people understand. You know, they don't want, they've already paid enough of the price for, for many decades now. Yeah. They don't really want to be the ones who have to fund this transition. I think the second thing that government has begun to do is to open up dialogue. And this is going to be a very complex situation with all of the different movements and communities and factors affected by um, all of these different projects. Because it's not as easy to just say, uh, let's close all the mining because for instance many communities are dependent on very small scale in many cases illegal mining uh, now this is not the you know this is in some ways very polluted mining particularly yeah. because it's illegal but it's also the, the the livelihood of these entire communities uh so for many of them just eradicating that overnight is is you know certainly not something they want to contemplate so already these these communities have been protesting farmer communities have been protesting as well so the government is going to have to work out how to acknowledge that these are uh, serious and important, um, uh, not, not gripes, gripes is not the word, but uh, you know, important issues that are being raised by the community um, and having to sit down and dialogue and bring these communities with them as part of this broader project to make sure it's successful and to avoid it, turn it into a cycle of conflict and protest against the government itself. Yeah, well, look, uh, this is just a brief introduction for listeners, but one of the most exciting bits I found in this story was to hear about the uh, vice president, this woman called Francia Marquez, and I had not heard about her before, but listeners might know her. She won the Goldman Prize in 2018, and that's the kind of Green Nobel Prize, and her ancestors were slaves, and she speaks not only for black people, she said, but for women, for indigenous people, and for nature herself. So the energy environment ministers are also women. And I wonder how this sort of feminist energy will change things. Do you think this is new? What do you, what do you hope for that from that? I think the most important aspect of it is that it's a recognition of the government um, that women have been playing an important role, not just in terms of what happens going forward, but in bringing Colombia to this point. Uh, the feminist movement, uh, um, the black movement in Colombia, Afro movement in Colombia, have been some of the key forces in those protests that I mentioned leading up to Petro's government. So what Petro has said is that we want our government to express the Colombia that really exists. You know, we can no longer continue to just have a Colombia that doesn't represent even visually, let alone politically, the majority of, of the people. So I think that's a powerful symbol. Uh, to the people to say, look, you are part of this government. We recognise you, we reflect you, we want to see you uh, contribute to this government. The challenge will be, as I mentioned in the previous question, of converting that beyond symbolism into something very concrete, um, because, of course, it wouldn't be the first time uh, that we've seen a government either involving a, a woman prime minister or, or an Indigenous minister in the Ministry of Indigenous Rights um, turning around to sell out their own communities. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen in Colombia, 
I'm saying this is the big challenge they face now to convert this symbolism and this reflection of those protests into an actual ongoing bond that ensures that the government and the protest movements in the streets are working in conjunction and not against each other. Right. Well, listeners, next week I hope to bring you part two from Federico Fuentes because he really has his finger on the pulse of what's happening in South America and we haven't covered it enough. So thank you, Fred, for talking to us on the Climate Action Show at 3CR. Thank you for the opportunity. It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Now we're back in Australia. Zone your mind in to the Carmichael coal mine in central Queensland. You've heard about Stopadani for years now and from the Wangan and Jagalingu people who have been now conducting ceremony there for one year, round-the-clock ceremony. Coral Winter, a journalist from Green Left, spent a week there with the Wangan and Jagalingu people. The Wangan and Jagalingu people up in Queensland have been standing their ground against the mega coal mine. It's owned by a company called Bravis, but behind that is the Indian company Adani. Climate campaigners are very grateful for their continued resistance, which is primarily to protect their land and water, which is sacred. Coral Winter was up there recently for the Wadanangu ceremony, and you'll be able to read her articles in Green Left quite soon. Coral, tell us about it. Just tell us about the place, what it looked like and what you learned there. Oh, look, it was a wonderful week. It was such a, a lovely time, meeting such nice people. There was over 100, up to 150 people who came during that week and camped for the whole, uh, for, and for the five days. Um, it was, we were, it was clear it was a very serious effort by the, the Wayne Jang and Jagalingu people because we all had to pass through a smoking ceremony as soon as we arrived at the site. It was a very serious you know, a ceremony for all of us, um, taken with, you know, made, done with great um, passion and, and, um, and spirit. So, but the main thing I learned, I think, from the experience was that the Wang Jang and Jagalingu people are trying to take back their country. They're trying to um, occupy the land uh, and, and have a, an area in which they can carry out uh, customs and stay on their land and, and they sort of see it as a really an extension of the historic um, campaign in 1972 when First Nations people set up the tent embassy outside the um, parliament in Canberra. This is an extension of that. They're, they're using the Human Rights Act of Queensland 2019 when it was passed um, to take back the right and have the right to stay on their land and carry out ceremony. So what's happened is that Cody has been carrying out ceremony for the whole year. He's been there the whole year with a, a fire continuously going in a borer ring on the, on the small mound near his campsite. And it's impossible for the Queensland government and for the police to deal with this because they don't know how to tackle it under the Human Rights Act. 
it, if they do try to evict them, it'll be a human, uh, be a massive international um, event on the international news and an exposure of the Queensland government. So they're just letting them sit there uh, and haven't actually had, there was no sight of police. There was a lot of security cars and guards from the mine itself, but none from police or from Queensland government. Could I ask you, just for international listeners, just describe the place. There's a big coal mine developing there, but there's also sacred waters and a landscape that many people will never have seen. So could you just describe it? Well, I suppose to the uninitiated, it doesn't look like much, but it's it's quite flat. That whole area is really flat. And they've got wonderful gidgy trees, huge gidgy trees. And we were taken to a um, scar tree site, which was a beautiful area, a little bit of a swamp here and there, not much, because it's all, it's all quite lovely at the moment because of all the water. But they have scar trees there where they, First Nations people would cut a hole in a tree and bury the placenta of the child in the tree. The tree had to be, and it was face, always facing east where the sun would rise. And it meant that child had to look after that tree for the rest of their life. And then they've also got birth trees, burial trees, sorry, burial trees, where the body would also, the bones of the body would also be buried in a, in a, in a hole that they make on one side of the tree. So it's very, very significant. But the implication of that practice was meant that, say if you had every person in Australia looking after a tree, we'd have 23 million trees. It was a beautiful custom. So he took us, Cody took us to see that site. It was really lovely. We walked around there. And then I noticed there was another site as we were going home leaving where they'd had put ribbons around it because it also was a sacred site. And it was obviously another birthing tree. Um, that, that was being under attack. So on top of that, they've got natural springs there, which are going to be destroyed by the Adani mine because they have to use all that water. They're using, you know, 40 gigalitres a, a day or something to wash the damn coal. So you're destroying the, the, the springs, um, which are sacred. And then on the horizon, you've got this huge mound, a slag heap, that, that of course, um, Adani is already mining. They started in December. 21, 2021, a massive slag heap. You wake up in the morning from the camp and sit and just look out and see this on the horizon. It's horrendous. So, and they're building massive roads through the whole area. But the area that Cody is occupying is quite a lovely stretch of, la of land with lots and lots of trees. He, we were also went on a, um, a, a native food, a, a tour of native foods in the area. And he showed us um, bush tomatoes and limes and um, nuts and uh, and a lot of the, just pointed out all the trees. And also there's acacias, beautiful acacias, a whole field of them mm -hmm. that we went to on a trip. And um, so it's a really, you know, you can see, I mean, we may not see anything special, there, but obviously when all these things are pointed out, you can realise how special each of these countries country areas are yes so, well yes, you yeah. mentioned that there were other people from other indigenous areas other first nations groups who came up there to learn something and i think cody's making this a kind of a yarning space and the place where knowledge is passed on so <clears throat> some of the other places tell us about the one from western australia Burrup peninsula 
Yes, there was a lovely visit and talk by Josie Alec, who's from a custodian from the Burrup area in Western Australia. And she's been devastated by the fact that they're trying to build a fertilizer plant. And the fertilizer plant creates so much destruction, smells, destroys the soil, the water, the wastewater will go into the rivers and the ocean and it stinks like anything. And um, they've already got a fertilizer plant near there. They don't need it. And they could have built it somewhere else, but they're building it in this area where there's all these huge sacred rocks. They're not little rocks, they're massive sacred rocks with the history, the 100,000 year history of Australia written into the rocks that can only be read by specially initiated members of the of the tribe. But, you know, what, are, I mean, they they look, they make much of the rocks in France that are caves there. Yeah. I think they're 30,000 years old or less. They make so much about that. And yet here we are destroying them and removing them to other, to another place. I mean, who knows how they'll be looked after. It's, and, and Tanya Plebis said the Minister of the Environment has told the fertiliser company they can go ahead just a couple of days ago. It's just heartbreaking. And these people have been fighting for five years to stop this destruction of their sacred sites. There was also a talk by uh, a Yugara man called DK at Debbing Creek, which is near Ipswich in Queensland. And there is a site of a massacre. Um, and it's, they've found children's bodies they weren't they were weren't named they were just buried into a mission a site of a mission and they want to have a residential development there and the government Queensland government will not um, deal with it in a proper fashion because there's also people of Chinese ancestry built there because it, they were, were imprisoned all these people under a, a law which covered um, indigenous people and also Chinese who were using opium well Cody is recommending that all the 367 clans that are still here in Australia to start occupying their land under any Human Rights Act they can use because the Native Titles Act is useless. Mm. You know, they've been fighting that for 50 years and every time they've been stymied, they build them on, you know, they have no right of veto. They can't even develop the land if they buy it back to have cattle stations or whatever. Uh, economy they're trying to develop they can't get a loan from a bank that's stipulated in the act they can't use that land for any for any loan so they're actually absolutely stopped so this is really a historic moment and a, a historic time to to extend the fight for land rights and and so um cody and um adrian baragaba are actually um uh, uh, appealing to people, every, everybody, just take over, start using the Human Rights Act to occupy their land. I should mention that Adrian Baragaba, as probably people know, that he's been um, bankrupted by Adani. The federal court allowed uh, Adani to award costs to Baragaba when he tried to stop the mine, so he's been bankrupted. They've also removed native title ownership of the Wangang and Jagalingu people. They've removed that from the Native Titles Act, which is unbelievable. So you'll see the next map that comes out of Australian um, original ownership of the, of, the land, of the land, Australian land. The Wangang and Jagalingu won't be, be there, which is unbelievable, you know, what these people are, are doing, what these parliamentarians and politicians are thinking. You don't. You just can't. You can't. Uh, you know, uh, fathom it.
We also heard from the lawyers from the Environmental Defender's Office that told us in great detail how they're fighting this mine and how they're fighting for the rights of land rights group, which they now want to, yeah, to extend to all groups. So it was a really, really fascinating um, um, week. And, and a lot of, we learned a lot of stuff that you don't hear about anywhere else. What act do you, do you want listeners to take? I mean, I know supporting the Wangan, we often say that support the Wangan and Jagalingu uh, cause, you know, their fighting fund, and you can just look that up on the internet, Wangan and Jagalingu. But what what other, it sounds so widespread, it sounds like you've really been at a summit, and it's wonderful to, to know that this living culture all over Australia it has survived all the depredations we've put upon them, but um, it has survived. It's a living thing, and we need them to do this now for for the climate climate. For my point of view, the climate protection, if they can, they and we can stop more coal and gas, is just like he's hugely historic, hugely important. But what action? People are often dithering about what action can you take. What do you think? Oh well, look. Um, we're going to organise an action outside Tanya Plebiscite's office. We oh. haven't heard about it yet oh. um, to stop this fertiliser plant. And um, oh, and people, Australian you know, we're going to fly down from all over the camp. Her, 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 you know, I suggested it because she's the Minister of Environment. She's okay this fertiliser plant and the, and the destruction of these, or the removal of these massive rocks. So I think people all over Australia can sort of start banging the drum and, you know, doing a protest action, even if it's small, just a few people outside their politician's office or outside yeah. mining offices or outside banks, whatever, you know, to make a noise about this because oh, I listened to Howard Zinn this morning and, you know, just saying, you know, every, every, every protest started with about two or three, four, very few people and you don't think you've got a chance, but, it, you know, you can build the movement over time. And that's, that's what we have to do, build this movement to stop Adani. And we'll I listen to that program too. And Howard Zinn listeners, you might have heard it on Democracy Now! He's a wonderful historian. It's the anniversary of his 100 years since he was born. And he said something like for children, we need to give them different heroes. Don't keep recording, you know, Captain Cook and Arthur Phillip and Macquarie in Australia, right. for example. Let's give the children some Cody McAvoy, you know. Adrian yeah, that's Barangaba. right. These are the heroes. Adrian Barangaba, you know. Yes. It should be a household <laughs> word. We're saying it here. Yeah. I this, this podcast reads just a lot of people because you can also change the theme and change the culture by just celebrating other things. And I think what you've told us today, you know, you've been up at a celebration and a summit of a kind of a resistance, but it's it's a gentle resistance. It's not they're not lying down on the railway tracks of the Adani mine. They are just continuing to do their ceremony and and gathering more and more people. To, into the knowledge that they have. I think that's wonderful. Okay, I'll let you go. Thank you okay. very much for that. Thanks. No worries. Bye. Bye. Thank you for giving your attention to the Climate Action Radio Show. Thank you to our guests, Carlos Zorija in Ecuador, Federico Fuentes and Coral Winter in Sydney, and thanks to the singers of Eskimo Joe. Thank you also to Dr. Gavin Mudd, who alerted us to the dangers of rushing into green extraction without safeguards. We must not create a worse environmental crisis, contaminating aquifers and destroying forests and all that live in them while trying to solve the climate crisis.
My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. This is Stephen Pigram from up Broomway, Yauru country. And it's great to be down in Melbourne and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Been here for a long time. Where I belong.